Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of these, your faithful, gathered here out of love for you. May my words and our hearts glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. To say that I struggled with preparing today's sermon in light of the events of last week and the events of the last months and and the events of the last two years would be an understatement. I struggled all week with this text. I tried to find anything else that might work better. There seems so much to say, and no words will ever be enough, will they? It was such a good sermon in my head when I thought about it. (laughs) And then when my friend, Reverend Dr. Dan DeLeon, called from College Station and said, what are you saying tomorrow? (laughs) Well, we worked up the best sermon in the world. But today, I don't know. It didn't come out on the paper in front of me is how I thought it would but you know the Holy Spirit she's so good and today on our way to church she gave me a gift we were listening to um, one of Stephanie's Spotify playlists which is really good and and so we came across a song that came up on the playlist when we were celebrating her her birthday in Galveston and our two boys were there, and Sydney was there, and our friends from Houston were there, and we had had a great, or we were getting ready to have a great dinner that evening out on the patio, and the song came up, come up, come up, shut up and dance with me. Do y'all know that song? Shut up and dance with me. Well, I loved it, and we danced around that house in Galveston like we owned the world. It was so fun. And so when it came on this morning, I was just listening to it and remembering. And we talked about how great that was to remember that day. And then I said, you know, that's what Jesus says. Oh, don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. I said you're holding back. And he said, shut up and dance with me. This is my destiny, he said. Shut up and dance with me. What a gift. The other thing that's hard about this sermon today is I really try not to be overtly political in my preaching, although Jesus was and was crucified for it. I try to say what I need to say without calling names or putting people down. And I'm going to try real hard not to do that today. (laughs) So we better go to the text. (laughs) I want to begin with one of the ancient stories of the First Testament. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
It's about Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and the prophets of Baal. You probably have heard this story. Um, <clears throat> they were faced off against each other. And uh, Elijah said, uh, well, let's get two bulls, and let uh, you, you cut one up and put it on the altar, and then you call upon your god Baal to rain down fire on this altar. And so the priest did all that, and then they moved around the altar, calling on Baal to come down and rain down fire, and nothing happened. And so Elijah said to the people with him, okay, let's do the same. So they built an altar, sacrificed a bull on it, built a moat around it, and, and before he did any of that, he set 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel around the outer ring. And then they dug a moat and put seeds all in it. And then he said, get water and douse the whole thing. Just saturated in water. So they did. And then he called on the God of Israel to rain fire down upon the altar. And a fire so powerful came down and consumed the bull and the altar and the seeds and licked up every drop of water, the scripture says. Now, I think Elijah took that as a sign that he needed to dispense with the priests of Baal. And so in typical fashion of this period, Elijah had the priest killed. It's a tough story, isn't it? It's an interesting story. But I tell you that because it appears in today's gospel reading. The scripture says they're going on their way and Jesus has turned his face to Jerusalem, which is a way of saying that Jesus <clears throat> had realized he was going to Jerusalem to die. And he has a single-minded consciousness focused on his mission the mission that is before him, to go to Jerusalem. Now, turns out they had to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. If you know the geography, they were up in Galilee. You have to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans didn't really agree that God's temple was in Jerusalem. They, they had their own temple. And so when Jesus arrives, and it's clear to them that he is on his way to Jerusalem, they're like, nah, done. Go on. Go on with you. And the disciples, James and John, who go by the, the name Sons of Thunder, <laughs> say to Jesus, well, would you like us to call down fire on the Samaritans? Meaning, you want us to do what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal? Because they considered the Samaritans, you know, uh, really unclean. You know, they, they were mixed race and didn't worship in Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. Re Reverend Dr. Dan DeLeon said that in the passage that the translation he said, um, it says that Jesus rebuked them harshly. Now, don't you wonder what he said? 
Don't you wonder? Because we don't get that. We just get that he rebuked them, rebuked them harshly. What we do know is that calling fire down on people's enemies, the people who are different, is not the way of Jesus. As they continued toward Jerusalem, one follower professes that he will follow Jesus anywhere. And you know, when I was growing up as a kid, that's exactly how I felt. I'll follow you anywhere. Didn't know it was so hard. And Jesus answered that the human one has nowhere to lay his head, which is to say, you, you can't follow me unless you want to be on the road with me. You want to be on the move with me. You want to go with me where I'm going. And I'm an itinerant Jewish rabbi. And that means I'm always moving. I'm always going. And Jesus is always going forward. Right? Jesus then calls two people to follow him. But each defers to what seems to be pretty good reasons in my book, right? The first wants to bury his father. Okay. The second wants to say goodbye to his family. Well, that makes sense. Seems reasonable. Except Jesus doesn't have time for that. Jesus has a single-minded consciousness and is moving toward Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, his promise to God. So the question then becomes, are those who are in this story, the disciples and these who have been asked to follow but have other things to do, are they fans of Jesus? Or are they followers of Jesus? Because I'm a pretty good fan. I don't know about you, I, I'm all about Jesus. And I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. But I'm not quite so sure I'm as good a follower. You see, Jesus is on this mission, an urgent mission. And Jesus is trying desperately to get the disciples and those who are hanging out with him to see a different kind of kingdom. John Dominic Crossan explains in his book, God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome, Then and Now, that for Jesus, the kingdom of God raised a politico-religious or religio-political question. To whom did the world belong? And how, depending on the answer, should it be run? Jesus didn't want his followers to avoid politics. I'm going to say that again. Jesus didn't want his followers to avoid politics. What he wanted was for them to live as a new community built on the practices of God's kingdom, a program of mutuality, of mutuality, of healing and eating, shared freely and openly. That program built a share community from the bottom up as a positive alternative to Caesar's Roman greed community established from the top down. Now, I can imagine at this point, I mean, he's on the road to Jerusalem. And the disciples say, you want us to call down fire from heaven and wipe out our enemies? 
because we're ready. We're ready for that, you know? And I think Jesus, knowing what's before him, must have despaired greatly in that moment. Despair must have washed over him like a tidal wave. I mean, he, he must just be befuddled over the fact that these who have been with him cannot get it. I think we have a lot of despair today, too. I don't know how you feel today. I don't know where you stand in response to the Supreme Court's decision on Roe. I don't know where you stand on the response to what we're learning about the January 6th events, or even the pandemic. I know where some of you stand, because, you know, I pay attention to Facebook and all that. colleague of mine wrote a devotional about this passage and, and it was honest and it touched me deeply and I'm right with him sometimes I wish I knew the God that Elijah knew <laughs> because I'm ready to call down fire on some people at this point <laughs> I, in fact I probably, my parent prayers have already been do, doing that I mean I'm ready I'm ready to say to Jesus, okay, you want me to call down fire on these people? Because I'm ready. <laughs> and then I could call down fire and all those people that I don't agree with, the captains of iniquity like those who resist action on climate change or favor authoritarianism but do not support the rights of the sovereignty of, the, of women's bodies or support for voting for all people are sensible gun laws. I, I mean, I, a little holy fire would be nice right now, wouldn't it? Yeah, because that's where we all are. But remember, Jesus rebuked the disciples harshly for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans. And I've got a pretty strong feeling that Jesus would rebuke me too. And if you're like me, compassion doesn't come quite as naturally to me as it did for Jesus. That's why I think I love the fire of Pentecost. Because it comes in a wind. And it enlightens and inspires and heals and blesses, but does not burn. And maybe that's the fire we ought to be calling down right now. Calling down the Holy Spirit's fire of Pentecost. It gives us the ability to talk, even though we say different words, uh, to talk and understand each other. <clears throat> so the big question for us is the same as it was for the disciples. Are we fans? trailing along behind Jesus, you know, enjoying, enjoying the scenery. You know, are, are we fans? Or are we intentional followers with our lives given over to him? 
If we would be followers, we cannot sit idly by and surround ourselves with family and friends who think like we do, live like we do, love like we do. To be a follower of Jesus means that there will be times when we cannot remain in the comfort of the, and the safety that our lives are accustomed to. I think of the people of Ukraine now who no longer, through no fault of their own, must live without the comfort and safety of what they knew. To be a follower of Jesus means that every waking moment, our every breath, is bound to Jesus, who gives us freedom to make a choice to live fully, to love extravagantly, and to be all that God has created us to be, and that is risky. To be a follower and not just a fan of Jesus is to put our hand to the plow and not look back. No turning back. No turning back. In 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon about the dangers of fundamentalism. And a hundred years later, people are reflecting on that sermon. And in 2022, Brian McLaren raised in an evangelical church and pastor of an evangelical church spoke about those same dangers still for us today. Remember that 1922 preceded a young man's rise to power in Germany. Toxic masculinity, toxic nationalism that would kill millions and millions and millions of people. This is what Brian McLaren had to say. A hundred years later, we see how people today are still tempted by that same toxic and intoxicating cocktail of racism, religious, religious bigotry, and sexual stigma served at the bar of social media by today's authoritarian con men. Whether they're on AM radio, cable TV, in Congress, or the White House. A fusion of white Christian fundamentalism and desperate political fascism is as much a threat as as you sit here today, as it was when Fosdick preached in 1922. Fosdick was right. Religious fundamentalism was a threat in 1922 and is a threat in 2022. But now, religious fundamentalism has become interwoven with a larger 21st century fundamentalism. Yes, religious fundamentalism, but also political fundamentalism, economic fundamentalism, racial fundamentalism, nationalistic fundamentalism, partisan fundamentalism, educational fundamentalism, all afraid of change, all addicted to delusions of past grandeur, all too confident in their old answers to wake up to new questions. And it's time for all of us, whatever our religious identity, to look up from the theological screens which keep us forever focused within an arm's length. A new question interrogates us. What in God's name are we going to risk and dare to do together with all who are willing, whatever their religious identity, about the convergence of the fundamental catastrophes that we face right now? That question we must answer not with words alone, 
but with the liturgy of our lives. Do you hear that? With the liturgy of our lives. And that, my friends, is how the church comes to life. That is how we become the church alive. When we offer to God the liturgy of our lives. And how long will it take? I'll tell you. How long do we keep our hand to the plow and not look back? Until the kingdom we now work against every time we deny mercy to the sinner, every time we deny liberation to the oppressed, every time we deny love to the despised, and until joy to the sorrowful fully occupies our heart, until that kingdom comes, that kingdom. The grace of the gospel then and now, well, I could talk, but hear what Paul had to say. In his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3 and 4, now God is the spirit and where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus, crucified and risen. We have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in our bodies, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. So, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For our slight momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Well, calling down holy fire was all well and good for Elijah, but not for the followers of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus never did that. Even on the cross, Jesus forgave the people who executed him because they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus knew that the people who killed him were victims of their own woundedness and the empire that operated from a top-down hierarchy and gave power and principalities the, the world. But this... Remember this, on the last night of his earthly life, having made his way to Jerusalem and his certain death, likely filled with a measure of personal desperate despair, knowing that his followers were far from what he needed them to be and to understand, Jesus said to them and to us, I have said these things to you so that in me, 
you will find peace. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.